Part two, chapter two of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Seventeen ninety four, the farm near Albany. As we did not wish to remain at Albany, General Schuyler took charge of finding us a farm which we could buy in the neighbourhood. He advised us in the meantime to arrange for three months to live with a family of his acquaintance which was located not far from the farm which his brother Colonel Schuyler occupied with his twelve children. Her sojourn at Albany therefore was not prolonged beyond several days. After this we went to live with Mr. Van Buren to learn American manners as we had made it a condition of living with this family that they were not to change in any way the customs of the house. It was also arranged that Mrs. Van Buren should employ me in the housework, the same as if I were one of her daughters. Monsieur de Chambeau, at the same time, began an apprenticeship with a carpenter of the little growing city of Troy, situated at a quarter of a mile from the Van Buren farm. He set out on Monday morning and returned Saturday night only to pass Sunday with us. We had just received news of the tragic end of my father-in-law, who perished upon the scaffold the 28th of April, 1794. Monsieur de Chambeau had received at the same time news of the death of his own father. As I was a very good seamstress, I fashioned for myself my morning costume and my good hostess, having thus learned to appreciate the skill of my needle, found it very pleasant to have a seamstress at her command without cost, when she would have been obliged to pay a dollar a day and board if she had hired one from Albany. My husband visited several farms. We were awaiting the arrival of the funds which had been sent us from Holland before purchasing the farm which we expected to acquire. General Schuyler and Mr. Van Rensselaer advised my husband to divide his funds into three equal parts, a third for the purchase, a third for the management, the purchase of negroes, horses, cows, agricultural implements and household furniture, and a third part added to what remained of the 12,000 francs brought by us from Bordeaux for a reserve fund to meet unexpected circumstances such as the loss of negroes or cattle, and also for living expenses the first year. This arrangement became our rule of conduct. Personally, I resolved to be in a position to fulfil my duties as manager of the farm. I began by accustoming myself never to remain in bed after sunrise. At three o'clock in the morning during the summer I was up and dressed, my room opened upon a little lawn stretching down to the river. When I say opened, I am not speaking of the window, but of the door which was on a level with the turf. Therefore, without moving from my bed, I could see the vessels passing. The Van Buren farm, an old mansion built in the style of Holland, occupied a delightful situation upon the bank of the river. Entirely isolated on the land side, it had easy facilities of communication with the other side of the river. 
Opposite, on a highway to Canada, was situated a large inn, where could be found all the notices, the papers and the posters regarding sales. Two or three stage coaches passed there every day. Van Buren owned two canoes, and the river was always so calm that it was possible to cross it at any moment. No road crossed this property. It was bounded at a distance of several hundred yards by a mountain covered with fine trees belonging to the Van Burens. We often said that this farm was just what we wanted, but the value was far beyond what we were able to pay. This was the only thing which prevented us from acquiring it, for the general rule in America at this time was that no matter how attached a man might be to his house, his farm, his horse or his negro, if you offered him a third more than the value, you were assured of becoming the owner. During the month of September, my husband entered into negotiations with a farmer whose land was situated on the other side of the river, upon the road from Troy to Schenectady, a distance of two miles in the interior. The situation of this farm, upon a hill overlooking a large expanse of country, appeared to us agreeable. The house was new, pretty, and in very good condition. The land was only partially under cultivation. There were 150 acres sown down, as many in woods and pasturage, a small kitchen garden of a quarter of an acre full of vegetables, and finally a handsome orchard sown with red clover and planted with cider apples. These trees were ten years old and in full bearing. They asked us 12,000 francs. General Schuyler did not think the price exorbitant. The property was situated at four miles from Albany, upon a route which they were going to open up to communicate with the city of Schenectady, which was in a thriving situation. The proprietor did not wish to move until after the snow was well packed. As we had arranged with the Van Burens, who evidently had had enough of us for two months only, it was necessary, therefore, to look for another home from the 1st of September to the 1st of November. At Troy we found, for a moderate sum, a little wooden house in the midst of a large yard enclosed by a board fence. Here we established ourselves, and as it would be necessary for us to purchase some furniture for the farm, we immediately acquired what we wanted. These pieces of furniture, added to those which we had brought from Europe, permitted us to be well settled at once. I had engaged a white girl who was quite satisfactory. She was to be married in two months, and consented to enter my service while awaiting the erection of the log house which her future husband was building, where they expected to live after their marriage. Here is what is meant by a log house. A plan better than a description would give an exact idea. A piece of land fourteen or fifteen feet square was levelled, and the construction was begun by building a brick chimney which was the first comfort of the house. Then the walls were erected. These were composed of large pieces of wood covered with bark, which were hewn in such a manner as to join exactly to each other. Above the walls was constructed the roof with an opening for the chimney. In the middle a door was installed. 
You see many of these houses in Switzerland, where they serve exclusively for the use of the cattle and the men who guard them. In America, these houses represent the first degree of shelter, and often the last, for there are always unfortunate persons, and these log houses in a prosperous city become the refuge of the poor. One day, at the end of September, I was in the yard with a hatchet in my hand, occupied with cutting the bone of a leg of mutton which I was preparing to put on the spit for our dinner. All of a sudden, I heard behind me a loud voice which said in French, On ne peut embrocher un guichot avec plus de majesté. Turning quickly, I saw Monsieur de Talleyrand and Monsieur de Beaumetz. Having arrived the evening before at Albany, they had learned from General Schuyler where we were. They came on his part to invite us to dinner and to pass the following day with them at his house. These gentlemen were to remain in the city only two days. An Englishman, who was one of their friends, was accompanying them and was very impatient to return to New York. However, as Monsieur de Talleyrand was very much amused at the sight of my leg of mutton, I insisted that he should return the following day to eat it with us. He consented. Leaving the children in the care of Monsieur de Chambeau and Betsy, we set out for Albany. En route, we talked a great deal upon all kinds of subjects, as people do when they meet after a long time. The latest news from Europe of which they were ignorant owing to their visit to Niagara, from which they had only just returned, was more terrible than ever. Blood flowed in floods in Paris. Madame Elizabeth, the sister of the King, had perished. Their relatives and our friends were counted among the victims of the terror. When we arrived at the house of the good general, he was on the stoop. From a distance, he made signs to us and cried, Come quickly, come quickly, there is great news from France. We entered the sitting room and every one of us took a paper. Here we found the news of the revolution of the Nine Thermidor, the death of Robespierre and his followers, the end of the shedding of blood, and the just punishment of the revolutionary tribunal. Monsieur de Talleyrand was rejoicing especially that his sister-in-law, Madame Archambault de Perigord, had escaped, when later in the evening, having taken up from the table a paper which he thought he had read, he found her name among the terrible list of victims executed the Ninth Thermidor that very morning, during the session in which Robespierre was denounced. The news of her death painfully affected him. His brother, who cared little for his wife, had left France in 1790, and as their fortune belonged to his wife, he had found it more convenient that she should remain in order to avoid confiscation. She left three children, a daughter who was later Duchesse de Poix, and two sons, Louis, who died in the army under Napoleon, and Edmond, who married the youngest of the daughters of the Duchesse de Courlande. Without the news of this cruel event, our evening with General Schuyler would have been more agreeable. 
Mr. Law, the travelling companion of Mrs. de Tarragonde and de Beaumetz, could have passed for the most original of Englishmen, all of whom are more or less so. He was a tall, blond man, forty or forty-five years of age, with a handsome, sad face. That evening, upon returning to their inn, he said suddenly to Monsieur de Talleyrand, Mon cher, nous ne partirons pas après demain. Eh, pourquoi? Vous avez retenu votre passage sur le sloop qui descend dans New York. Oh, cela est égal. Je ne veux pas partir. Ces gens de Troy que vous avez été chercher. Eh, bien? Tu veux les revoir encore plusieurs fois. Demain, vous irez chez eux? Oui. J'irai vous y prendre le soir. Je veux voir cette femme-là chez elle. Then he became silent, and they could not get another word out of him. The following morning, after having dined with our paternal general, Monsieur de Talleyrand and my husband returned to Troy. I had preceded them during the morning, for it was necessary for me to prepare the dinner for my guests. A little negro drove the carry-all, which could be easily procured at Albany for a dollar. Monsieur de Talleyrand was amiable as he had always been for me, without any variation, with that charm of conversation which no one has ever possessed to a greater degree than himself. He had known me since my childhood, and therefore assumed a sort of paternal and gracious tone, which was very charming. I regretted sincerely to find so many reasons for not holding him in esteem, but I could not avoid forgetting my disagreeable recollections when I had passed an hour in listening to him. As he had no moral value himself, by singular contrast, he had a horror of that which was evil in others. To listen to him without knowing him, you would have believed that he was a worthy man. That evening, Mr. Law, accompanied by Mr. Bometz, came to take tea. I already had a cow, and gave them some excellent cream. We went for a walk, and Mr. Law offered me his arm, and a long conversation followed between us. Brother of Lord Landolf, he had left, while still very young, for India, where, for a period of fourteen years, he had been in the employ of the government of Patna, or some similar post. There he had married a rich Indian widow, by whom he had two sons who were still children. His wife had died, leaving him a considerable fortune. Upon his return to England he had not been happy, and had formed the resolution of coming to America to invest in that country in the purchase of land, a part of the capital which he had brought back from India. Two days later we were to pass the day at Mrs. Van Rensselaer's with all the Schuylers. Monsieur de Talleyrand had been extremely impressed by the remarkable culture of Mrs. Van Rensselaer, and could not believe that she had not passed years in Europe. She had a very clear understanding of American affairs and the Revolution, of which she had gained a profound and extended knowledge through her brother-in-law, Colonel Hamilton, who was the friend and also the most intimate confidant of Washington. Colonel Hamilton was expected at Albany 
where he intended to pass some time with his father-in-law, General Schuyler. He had just resigned the position of Secretary of the Treasury, which he had held since the peace. It was to him that the country owed the good order which had been established in this branch of the government of the United States. Monsieur de Talleyrand knew him and had the very highest opinion of him. But he found it very remarkable that a man of his value and endowed with talents so superior should leave the ministry to assume the profession of lawyer, giving as his reason for this decision that the position of minister did not give him the means of bringing up his family of eight children. Such a pretext seemed to Talleyrand very singular, and so to speak, even a little naïf. At the end of the dinner, Mr. Law took Talleyrand by the arm and led him into the garden, where they passed some time. The departure of these gentlemen was fixed for the following day, and they had formed the plan of coming to Troy in the morning to say adieu to us. After his conversation with Talleyrand, Mr. Law stated that he had letters to write and return to his inn. Monsieur de Talleyrand then led my husband and myself to a corner of the salon, where he related what Monsieur Law had said in these terms. My good friend, I am very fond of these people, and my intention is to lend them a thousand louis. They have just purchased a farm. It will be necessary for them to have cattle, horses, negroes, and so on. As long as they inhabit the country, they will not repay my loan. Besides, I would not accept it. It is necessary for me to help them in order to be happy. If they refuse, I shall fall ill. They will render me a real service in accepting my offer. Then he added, Cette femme, si bien élevée, qui fait la cuisine, qui traite sa vache, qui lave son linge, cette idée m'est insupportable. Elle me tue. Voilà deux nuits que je n'en ai pas dormi. Talleyrand was a man of too good taste to turn to ridicule such a feeling. He asked us very seriously what reply he should make. To tell the truth, we were very profoundly touched by this proposition, notwithstanding the originality with which it was made. We requested Monsieur de Talleyrand to express to his friend our very sincere thanks, and to assure him that for the moment we were able to take care of all the demands of our establishment, but that later on, if owing to some unexpected circumstance we found ourselves in need, we would promise to let him know. This promise, which he received that evening, quieted him a little. The following morning he came to say adieu. The poor man was as embarrassed as if he had done something wrong. We were awaiting with impatience the first snowfall, and the moment when the river would be frozen for three or four months. In order to have the ice solid, it is necessary that the freezing should take place during twenty-four hours, and that the ice should be two or three feet thick. This peculiarity is due entirely to the locality and the immense forests which cover the large continent to the west and north of the settlements of the United States. But it is not 
due to the latitude. It is probable that at the present writing the great lakes are now almost entirely surrounded by settlements, and that the climate of the region in which we lived has notably changed. From the 25th of October till the 1st of November, the sky was covered with a mass of clouds so thick that the day was obscured. A north-west wind, bitterly cold, blew with great violence, and everyone made preparations to put aside whatever could be covered up by the snow. We took out of the river the boats, the canoes and the barks, turning upside down those which had no decks. Everybody at this time displayed the greatest activity. Then the snow commenced to fall with such abundance that you could not see a man at ten paces. Ordinarily the ice formed two or three days before. The first care was to trace with pine branches a wide route along one of the banks. In the same way were marked the places where the border was not steep and where one could pass upon the ice. It would have been dangerous to pass elsewhere, for in many places the ice lacked solidity upon the edges. We had acquired moccasins, a kind of foot covering of buffalo skin made and sold by the Indians. The price of these articles was sometimes quite high when they were embroidered with dyed bark or with porcupine quills. It was in purchasing these moccasins that I saw the Indians for the first time. They were the last survivors of the Mohawk tribe, whose territory had been purchased or taken by the Americans since the peace. The Onondagas, established near Lake Champlain, also were selling their forests and disappearing at this epoch. From time to time some of them came to us. I was a little surprised when I met for the first time a man and woman practically nude promenading tranquilly upon the highway, without anyone seeming to find this remarkable. But I soon became accustomed to this, and when I was settled on the farm I saw them almost every day during the summer. We took advantage of the first moment that the route was traced and trodden down to commence our moving. The funds which we awaited from Holland had arrived, and my grandmother, Lady Dillon, who had died the 19th of June, had left me a legacy of three hundred guineas, although she had never seen me. With this money we bought our farm utensils. We already possessed four good horses and two work sleds. A third served for our personal use and was called the Pleasure Sleigh. It could hold six persons. It was constructed in the form of a very low box. At the back was a seat a little wider than the body of the sleigh, which was placed upon a box in which we could put small packages, and it had a back higher than your head, which broke the force of the wind. The other seats, two in number, were composed of simple planks. Buffalo robes and sheepskins covered the feet. Two horses were attached and we were carried very swiftly. We accordingly set out to establish ourselves on our farm, although the sellers were still occupying it. They were in no hurry to move out, and we were literally obliged to put them out the door. 
at this time we bought a negro and this purchase which seemed to be the most simple thing in the world produced in my case a feeling so new that i shall remember it all my life a few days after our arrival the people from whom we had purchased the farm finally went away leaving us the house which was dirty and badly kept they had abandoned the property after having occupied it for several years because it had become too small for them and they were going to take possession of another place on the other side of the river as soon as we were alone in the house we spent a little money in arranging it the house comprised only the rooms on the ground floor and was raised five feet above the earth at the time it was built they had commenced by constructing a wall buried six feet in the ground and rising two feet above the surface this part formed the cellar and the milk room above the rest of the house was a wood as you still see frequently in switzerland the vacant spaces in the carpentry work were filled with sun-dried bricks which formed a wall very compact and very warm Monsieur de Chambeau had well profited by his four months of apprenticeship with the master carpenter, and had really become a very good workman. Besides, it would have been impossible for him to think of idleness, for my activity admitted of no excuse. My husband and he could have applied to me those words of Talleyrand on Napoleon, Celui qui donnerait un peu de paresse à cet homme serait le bienfaiteur de l'univers. In short, during all the time that I lived at the farm, well or ill, the sun never found me in my bed. End of part two. Chapter two.